1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Ariane Chappelle d'Apollonia to tell us all about her book just out from Cornell University Press titled Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society. This is a really interesting book uh, analyzing primarily though doing some other things too, um, why and how various ethno-racial groups in the United States use different forms of violence, proactively, instrumentally, using different forms of violence to achieve some pretty clear goals. Um, So in the book, this looks at history, um, analyzing quite a chunk of time to help us understand both what happened in the past and what's happening in the present, and also potentially what's happening in the future, um, to look at ethno-racial relations, to look at the use of violence um, beyond a sort of headline, oh no, this is happening way, but really understanding the mechanisms here and what is at work, um, how this changes over time, to what extent it doesn't change over time. Um, and I'm not gonna give anything else away because Ariane is the expert. She's here to tell us all about it. Thank you so much for being with us on the podcast, Ariane. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into your fascinating book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this?
0: So I'm a professor at Rutgers University, the State University of New Jersey, and I'm also a senior researcher at Sciences Po in Paris, where I spent almost 30 years before moving to the, to the United States. And I was trained as an historian, political scientist, and philosopher which may explain why I always apply an interdisciplinary perspective in my research. And um, I'm I'm working on issues related to diversity, broadly defined, uh, and these include immigration policies, integration of minorities in Western democracies, racism, other forms of exclusion, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, nativism populism and so on so this is a vast research agenda and i published several books over the last uh, 30 years and the point is each time i i i finish a book uh, i'm i'm very happy i'm relieved but i'm i'm also very concerned because i realized that there were more questions that need to be addressed So at the end of my last book on how does it feel to be a threat? It's the title of the book. It's an homage to Du Bois. How does it feel to be a problem? I realized that um, ethno-racial violence, especially in the United States, was not fully addressed by conventional perspectives. Um, For example, racial studies. Uh, they tend to focus on the traditional white and black dichotomy, which is so important, especially in the United States. But these studies tend to dismiss the use of violence by minorities, including African Americans. Um, migration integration studies, so I use them a lot in my work on immigration. Um, they they dismiss they completely dismiss the use of violence by um, non-black minorities. And there are also vast literature on ethnic conflict. Um, but this literature mostly focus on how ethno-racial identity uh, remains a source of violence without considering the countervailing effect of violence on ethno-racial identification. So I was a little bit frustrated, and I was thinking, you know, maybe there is something I can do. And then um, I actually started to work on "Violent America" in 2014, when protests and riots took place in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, after the the killing by the police of Michael Brown. And this event was another tragic illustration of the. Perpetration of violence in America, um, police brutality, then urban ethno-racial riots and so on, despite significant changes uh, since the sixties. So the fact that I was living in the United States, I was, you know, trying to understand the situation in this country, but also from my perspective, a comparative perspective, Europe, uh, US. Um, the United States was, if I may say, the perfect case study, because the United States is plagued by violence and racism.
1: Mm. Thank you for providing us that insight into how you came to the book. I think it's makes a lot of sense to sort of come in going, hang on, I've got some unanswered questions here. Um let's poke at it and see what happens. And unsurprisingly, given those questions, um it's definitely a book and very much building off your previous work. Would you mind taking us through the main unresolved questions that this book is trying to answer?
0: So in 2014, I I sat in front of my computer and I said, okay, you need you need to find an explanation. Um, And the riots in Ferguson raise one key question. How can we explain the resilience of ethno-racial violence in America over time, despite significant institutional and societal changes? Of course, progress is relative, but the Jim Crow regime has been dismantled. There are more opportunities for minorities to integrate and so on. So... I say there is something puzzling, and I examine the traditional explanation in terms of socioeconomic inequalities. We are familiar with that. The absolute relative deprivation, um, institutional explanation, the lack of effective reform when it comes to police brutality, for example, but also many examples of institutional discrimination against minority I also look at the cultural explanations and so on. So I spent a lot of time uh, reading all the literature since the 60s. And of course, these perspectives provide useful insight, but they they did not address three variations that became my three sub-questions. The first point is that Similar adversarial context do not generate similar outcomes. When the riots took place in Ferguson, I said, okay, it's easy to explain, to understand the riots in Ferguson, but there were many other young African-Americans, victims of racial profiling, racial um, discrimination, police brutality in localities very similar to Ferguson, where the same condition existed. But these, however, did not lead to protest and not to violent protest. So I wanted to understand why similar context uh, did not produce similar reaction. The second variation I wanted to explain was that different minorities facing similar forms of adversity do not react in similar ways. African Americans in the United States are obviously the main target of racism, discrimination, police brutality, and so on. But they're not the only one. And we we have to bear in mind that Hispanic, for example, since the 60s and even before the Chicanos in California, but also Asian. Uh, American Asian immigrants, they're also targeted by police brutality, by racism, discrimination, and so on. But they do not react the same way. We still, we don't have, uh, even today, a Brown life Matter or Asian life Matter movement. And the third variation I also wanted to address um, was that minority groups can simultaneously be victim of violence and use violence against other groups and I know it it was uh, maybe the most controversial part of my argument although I really didn't want to be controversial but it's a fact that minorities can be both victim and perpetrator of violence and also minorities can be engaged at the same time in interracial coalition and intergroup conflict. So after two years, looking around, studying all the literature and so on, I say, okay, I need need to address these variations um, and based on an historical perspective and also by combining different approach. My point is not to pretend that I have the explanation uh, I don't even pretend that uh, I, I'm, I'm going to replace all the uh, traditional explanation. My only attempt is to add an explanatory factor that can really address these puzzling variations.
1: Mm. Thank you for taking us through these questions. Um, It's really important to raise questions, even if we can't, you know, no one person can necessarily answer them, but it's very helpful to have them stated so clearly. One of the contributions you make in the book towards beginning to answer these questions is with a model of ethno-racial relations to help understand how all these different things can be going together at the same time. Would you mind taking us through your model and perhaps with an example to sort of illustrate it? So,
0: as I say, I I was trying to find the best way to address these puzzling variations. So I, I decided to take into account three elements. The first one was the necessity to move beyond the white and black dichotomy. Of course, this is very important, this is essential. But we need to consider all aspects of intergroup relations, meaning prejudice, the use of violence between and among each group. So it was the first argument of the book. Secondly, I also pointed out that violence can be reactive as a response to diversity, Violence can be used to create, to secure domination. But violence, in all cases, is instrumental. That's why I, there is a subchapter uh, entitled The Utility of Violence. So by mentioning the utility of violence, I'm not trying to justify violence, but... Um, Groups use violence with a meaning. They use violence in order to achieve objectives. We may disagree with their objectives, with the use of violence, but there is no group using violence for the fun of it, for the sake of it. That's not true. It was not true in the past, and it's certainly not true today. So all groups have an instrumental use of violence. Once again, it can be reactive as protection, as a reaction, a response to violence, but all groups have an instrumental use of violence in order to secure access to symbolic or material resources. And the third point, finally, was to argue that violence and identity are Related. You can't have one without the other, especially in the United States, because a close examination of historical violent episodes suggests that the use of violence has been strategically foundational to the emergence of ethno racial identities in America. It started from the very beginning, from the first white settlers. Um, And they use violence to create their domination. And then all the system was created, was built around this relationship between violence and identity. So on the basis of these three arguments, I combine different approaches in in my model. Um, Mostly the, the contributions of social movement theory, Social mobilization, uh, the work of Mario Diani, Doug Mac, um, Adam, for example, um, with three perspectives. Reactive identification, in order to understand group consciousness, the role of violence in group consciousness, and the, the influence of group consciousness in the use of violence. Second, identity politics, how a sense of threat generate grievances and how grievances frame identity politics. And finally, uh, contentious identity politics which combine the social mobilization literature with the, of course, the contentious politics um, with Sid Tarot, uh, Charles Tilley and, and other scholars. And there I, I focus on the relative group positioning vis-à-vis other ethnic groups. By, and what is also important in my model is to take into account realities, objective discrimination, but also perceptions, the subjective element that fuel identity politics, the sense of being discriminated against, and so on.
1: Is there perhaps um, an example of pe- a particular group with pieces of that that you could take us through?
0: Well, the, the, the main example I always you know, mention to my, to my students is the, we, we tend to believe that uh, blackness is a given. And of course, uh, black in the United States became black not by choice, But because they were classified, identified, and discriminated against based on their blackness. But there was, as a response to violence, um, mass killings and so on, there was a reactive identification, a group consciousness. When we speak today of African Americans, we have to remember that even this... um, Uh, label is recent vintage because uh, black in America, African-Americans, the the term was coined in the 60s. Um, So what we didn't call them African-Americans at that time, but African-Americans were very heterogeneous. There was no identity. The only identity was to be discriminated against, to to be the slave descendant, to have to endure police brutality and so on. But it was the only element of homogeneity. Then, on the basis of their reactive identification, and I I mentioned Du Bois, um, saying, well, we need to have this group consciousness, we need to be organized, we need to have our own institutions and so on there was a re- the identity politics. And this identity politics combined with a reactive identification leads to contentious identity politics as illustrated by the civil rights movement, with sometimes the use of violence, mostly reactive violence, in order to achieve very specific goals equality before the law, the end of police brutality, the end of the Jim Crow regime, and so on.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you for taking us through that. That makes quite a lot of sense Um, and relates very much to sort of my next question um, of the specific goals, right, in using violence to achieve them, because one of the goals that you talk about is integration. Um, Because, of course, if we're looking at things like African Americans, as you've said, there was very much an, an othering, um, a, a visible creation of difference. Um, but that's not true for all ethno racial groups and um, that you look at in the book where kind of what integration is possible and what that could look like. Um, there's a much wider range of possibilities than if we just look at the idea of white versus black. So could you help us understand why different why and how different groups in America have used um, violence to achieve integration? Maybe I I know that this from your book, right? This happens now. This has happened in the past. So kind of wherever you'd like to go on the historical spectrum with this. Well, if we go back to
0: the past, um, so that's why I think the historical perspective is, is useful. There is only one group who use violence by choice, not so much by necessity. It was the, the white settlers, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Um, they arrived and they, as I say, they created and consolidate um, and secure their domination by using violence against native Indians and slavery. So it, they, they already had an identity. They, they, they travel from England with their identity. They didn't need an identification process and so on. And they secure their whiteness by using violence. We can't imagine more violent than genocide and slavery. So this is, this is almost the exception in the construction of ethno-racial identities in the United States. Whiteness whiteness did not exist um, until the second world war in the united states when we talk today the dichotomy between white and black we have to remember that european immigrants italian uh, irish german immigrants were not perceived as being white by the white settlers by the white anglo-saxon protestants they were classified and treated, mistreated, as either black or brown. So the only option for European immigrants to assimilate, to integrate, was to secure their whiteness, to prove to the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that they were fully white. The only solution, the only option in the United States, they proved their whiteness by using violence, against non-white minorities. So the Irish, for example, when they arrived in the United States, they were mostly against slavery. They were against racism and so on. But after a while, they realized that they were competing with African-Americans and so on, and they were rejected by all the whites. So they secured their whiteness by using violence against African-Americans. The Italian did the same, and all the European immigrants did the same. That's why it was a long process, but by the end of the Second World War, all the whites were white. Um, so it's always instrumental. They, some of them maybe were not even racist, but in order to secure their access to symbolic and material resources, they had to use violence in order to secure
1: their integration. Mm. And either with this example or um, any others, to what extent do you think this has been successful, the use of violence in order to integrate? Has it worked?
0: Well, it worked very well for the white, okay, for the European immigrants who became part of the dominant group. Um, To some extent, the consolidation of blackness um help the civil rights movement and it leads to the dismantlement of the Jim Crow regime and so on. But all the groups are still staying in between. We, we call in-betweenness. And this is the case of most Hispanic and most Asian groups in the United States, where they're attracted by whiteness. Um, and this may explain anti-Black prejudice among Hispanic and Asian communities, um, but on the other end, uh, they don't like the Anglos among Hispanics. So it's very complicated for them to find uh, a place. And maybe this is why they use violence less often than other groups.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Thinking about these connections between the historical elements of the book, the the long historical analysis um, and more of what we see today, one of the really helpful aspects I found in the book is the connections that you made between earlier ethno-racial conflicts, so earlier in the 20th century, including but not limited to the civil rights movement um, and the violence that was seen in the US in the 1980s and the 1990s around race. Can you help us understand what impacts we can see from those earlier ethno-racial conflicts in the grievances and the increased use of violence in the 80s and 90s? So, as
0: I said, the, the use of violence by European immigrants secure their whiteness. And this um, inspire, if I may say, other the group, not so white, but not black, Uh, to use the same strategy. Um, So, for example, um, the white Hispanic, white Hispanic, um, they're attracted by whiteness, by the privilege related to whiteness and so on. So, uh, not only they tend to describe themselves when they answer the census question, they tend to describe themselves as white and Hispanic, but white first, because Hispanic is not a racial category, it's an, it's an ethnic category, um, and some Asian that look quite white. So this, and among this group, we, um, we, we, we found a high level of anti-black prejudice, if not sometimes the use of violence um, among the, the rioters in January 2021, the attack on the capital, one of the leader of the populist, uh, white supremacist uh, organization, well, is Hispanic. And um, he likes to use violence against other minorities in order to secure his whiteness. So that's the uh, very pessimistic uh, influence of previous successful integration. The second example is the success of the civil rights movement. Um, this movement was based on reactive identification as a response to Jim Crow regime, racism and so on. And it was a uh, support for mobilization in order to obtain respect, recognition, rights. So it was successful to the point that there were significant legislative reforms and more opportunities for black minorities. So this inspired other groups, um, such as the Chitano's activists, who wanted you know, to, to do the same. Um, and this strategy, integrative strategy work, Because identity politics, the way they they use identity politics in the 60s, I know it sounds like an oxymoron because we didn't use the word identity politics, but I'm sorry, I have to use a concept that was coined after. But identity politics at that time was used according to an egalitarian conception. Different groups, based on their differences, wanted to fight together in order to obtain equality before the law, social justice, racial justice. So the the problem is that these successful stories um, were transformed during the 80s and the 90s. So new cycles of grievances emerged during this period. And they were, I think, three elements that explain why um, the mobilization in the 80s, 90s was different from previous um, cycles. Um, first, there were new tensions uh, raised by the relative achievement of post-civil rights era. Former not fully white, now part of the dominant white category, Felt threatened by the rights given to African Americans and other minorities, so they were. This started a a new wave of intergroup conflict based on competition. Uh, The idea of, you know, zero sum game: if minorities uh, get more rights and so on, it will be less for the dominant white. And as a result. There was the white backlash and ethno-racial relations became much more polarized during the 80s and the 90s. And the second factor, and of course it's related, is the evolution of America overall demographic composition. There were less and less European immigrants, more and more Hispanic, more and more Asian immigrants. And th- this The result was a greater racial, ethno-racial diversity, and these complicated established patterns of identification. So there were attacks, for example, against affirmative action by white, but also by non-black minorities who said, well, we are also discriminated against. And like African-Americans, we deserve access to symbolic and material resources. So this also polarized, increased the competition between different groups. And finally, there was the radicalization of identity politics at that time, um, based on the diversification of identities. Not only identities based on race or ethnicity, but there was a spillover effect of identity politics with um, gendered um, identities, sexual identities. So in addition to race of ethnicity, identity politics also include differences based on religious, ethnic, racial lines, gender, sexual orientation, and so on. And new groups, wanted to follow the same identity politics than groups during the sixties and the seventies. For example, the third wave of feminist, um, the LGBTQ um, groups. um, And it was also uh, captured by the notion of intersectionality. So intersectionality was very good, in terms of awareness of the complexity of discrimination. You can be discriminated on many grounds. um, But it also fragmented identity politics into subgroups and sub-subgroups. So there was a multiplication of contentious repertoire, backlash effect, and um, this, of course, explained the polarization and the racialization of almost everything in the United States. Even, you know, policies having nothing to do with race and ethnicity in the early uh, 2000s and especially after the election of Barack Obama. Mm.
1: Um, Thank you for explaining kind of that change over time and, you know, put like that, those factors really do help understand why it seems like um, the '80s and '90s were kind of a step change in some way when thinking about violence in this context. We've talked; you've you've given us some different examples uh, between groups across time about the variation in the use of violence between and within different ethno-racial groups. Is there anything further you'd like to say about what how we can understand that variation? So. The, the, the main point is,
0: remember, I tried to explain why um, similar adversity does not produce the same outcomes, okay, uh, in different locations, but also among different groups. So um, if, if, you've, if I was clear on my argument, um, when you have an increasing number of groups and subgroups competing um, and trying to use identity politics to secure symbolic material resources and so on everything is becoming more and more complicated Um, there are more opportunities for different groups but the fact that there are more opportunities for different groups also increase the opportunity for some groups to be categorized as posing a threat for example and so, when I tried to explain the puzzling variation that I mentioned at the beginning, um, I uh, I figured that the use of violence, the intensity of violence, the forms of violence—it can be discursive, hate speech, or physical. Um, so the use of violence depends first on the level of adversity but not so much the objective level of adversity. Of course, we need to use the data on socioeconomic inequalities, discrimination in the job market, housing, and and so on. But it's the perceived level of adversity that really matters. That's why you can have members of a dominant group, white, who feel threatened by other groups and, therefore, They use this sense of threat to justify the use of violence against other groups. So that's one ingredient. The second is the sense of groupness. And uh, this may explain why Hispanic and Asian tend to use less physical violence than other groups. Because African-Americans are much more organized, they're much more homogeneous now than other ethno-racial groups. In fact, we, I talk about Hispanic, but it's so broadly defined that this notion has no meaning for the vast majority of Hispanic. Only a tiny minority of them describe themselves as Hispanic. They're Hispanic for non-Hispanic. When you ask them, please identify yourself, they they tend to focus on their country of origin or the country of their parents. They describe themselves as Mexican, as Cuban. And as you may know, there is not a lot in common between Mexican and Cuban. Um, And they don't get on well, very well actually. They Politically, they're very different. Mexican tend to be liberal, Cuban tend to be very conservative, um, and there are tension and, and violence, including physical violence, among different so-called Hispanic groups. So the Hispanics are extremely fragmented. So to organize a vast mobilization, including the use of violence, well, this is not, this is not really possible not to mention that um, first generation and also undocumented immigrants they don't they don't want to protest violently because they fear of deportation. The third element that may explain variation in the use of violence is mobilization resources the level of organization political incorporation uh, African American uh, extremely well organized, um, while Hispanic are not so well organized. Um, The Hispanic, we we tend to speak about a Latino vote, um, the Hispanic organization, political organization, but actually they're underrepresented. And um, Asian, the size of the Asian communities is growing very fast, but they're still a minority among minorities. So they don't have the resources. And when you use violence, you need, as I say, you need to have a meaning, you need objectives. And they, they know that to achieve their objective integration, they, they don't need to use violence. And there is the agenda. Uh, agenda for Hispanic, the priority is not to fight racism, it's not to fight police brutality, although they are victims of police brutality. the The main priority for them is immigration policy, how to reform the system. So they have to they have to choose. and in the book I, I quote some Hispanic activists and they said, we don't we have limited resources. we can't fight for everything. we can't demonstrate against police brutality, because we need to save our time and energy for the reform of the immigration system. And finally, there is also institutional support. And this is quite depressing, but it's easier for white to use violence, um, racist violence, because um, they have institutional support we know that um, when it comes to law enforcement, there is discrimination against minority. So you can be a criminal if you're white. Um, it's much better than to be African-American or Hispanic in, in the jail system when it comes to racial profiling and so on. And during the Trump administration, um, the there was almost... Um, an authorization by the president to use violence, um, and and I'm think I think for example the the events that took place in Charlottesville in 2017 when there was this violent demonstration, the use of violence by white supremacist group, and President Trump did not condemn them. He say, well, you know, there are nice people on both sides, and so on. So. When you're almost encouraged by the president of your own country to use violence based on racism against other groups, um, this also explains the variation in the use of violence.
1: Mm, Very much so. You also talk about in the book um, alliances and how different ethno-racial groups um, work together um, between different groups, within different groups, and this also has variation. So, could you take us through um, how do or how have different groups used alliances um, to pursue these goals?
0: Yeah, it was it was very important for me, and it, to to also identified um, not only all the reasons explaining the resilience of ethno-racial violence in the United States, but also to identify a counter-example when different groups um, try to mobilize together uh, and to create a non-contentious identity politics. So there there were examples in the past of um, successful interracial coalitions. I mentioned the civil rights era when... Various groups, African-American, white liberal, Jews, Chicano activists, they they fought together uh, and they fought violence together in order to obtain social justice, civil rights, economic equality, and so on. And these coalitions were successful because they resisted a narrow race-based politics. These groups were able to share common goals, to have common interests, and to develop trust over time. So this provide a solid ground to address social and political issues. Some coalition had to use violence, reactive violence, because they were attacked by uh, institutions, by the police, um, but most also did not need to use violence and there was a few example of coalition um, with new immigrants undocumented um, immigrants and and the the most interesting example is the latino demonstration large demonstration across the united states in 2006. so this is one example and it was against the very restrictive immigration measures and the Latino protest was supported by different groups and they didn't have to use violence. So that's, that's almost the perfect case study. On the other hand, they got nothing. There was no major successful reform. So it was a very nice, very encouraging, very optimistic forms of mobilization but there was no result. Meaning that in the United States, it seems that if you want to have some result, some level of violence has to be included.
1: Mm. In fact, this might be a conclusion that groups are reaching, um, as unfortunately we see from the 1990s till today, um, violence seems to be coming even more commonplace um, and coalitions more difficult to build. Um, What do you think has caused um, this increase in violence and decrease in coalition building between the factors you discussed for the 1990s and now?
0: So this relates to something, you know, you remember utility of violence, okay? But the the dark side of the utility of violence is the banality of violence. The idea that it's okay to use violence um, Against other groups because actually everybody is using violence. So, what's the point? You know, it's violence as usual. So, I want to clarify we have more and more discursive violence in the United States, and to some extent, less physical violence. The only good news is that we have less violent confrontation between and among minority groups. But we still have other forms of violence, gun violence. I mean, American society is plagued by mass killings, gun violence. More people died from uh, guns than um, all the Americans who died during all the war since the War of Independence. I mean, this is massive. So it depends what kind of violence. But if we focus on ethno-racial relations, we have less physical violence among groups. It doesn't mean that there is less violence against minority, including discursive violence. We have, especially um, since the Trump administration, we had a dramatic increase of discursive violence, hate speech, um, white supremacist propaganda, and so on. So uh, physical violence. Between groups tend to decrease, uh, but other forms of violence tend to increase. So, uh, how can we explain this variation? And I, I want to mention the Black Lives Matter because I think it it illustrates both the banality of violence that this movement has to fight against. But also the Black Lives Matter is a perfect illustration of a very successful and also, unfortunately, very unsuccessful example of mobilization. So Black Lives Matter was very successful. It was based on the useful insights of intersectionality, that there are different grounds for discrimination. Um, This fueled a large coalition of groups defined by ethno-racial criteria, but also by gender, sexual orientation, and so on. And Black Lives Matter was supported by white, um, overwhelmingly supported, especially among liberal whites, but also by Hispanic, up to 77% in June 2020, and Asian, 75%. So it's, it was the perfect illustration of an interracial coalition fighting with a common agenda. It was wonderful. However, the support for Black Lives Matter among minorities decreased very rapidly uh, among Hispanic, among Asian. And the main reason is that they, they had the feeling that the Black Lives Matter did not represent their interest. Um, Suddenly they say, but it's only about police brutality against African-American. What about anti-Asian discrimination? What about police brutality against Hispanic? And also the resilience of anti-Black sentiment among Asian and Hispanic communities. And what is also depressing is that Black Lives Matter became a victim of contentious identity politics. It was criticized, for example, by some Black activists for being violent or by focusing too much on police brutality to the detriment of other very important issues. It was also criticized by the black trans community for not taking into account violence against LGBTQ+. And we are unfortunately facing an increasing number of attack, violent attack against the LGBTQ plus community. And finally, it was criticized by feminist group saying, you focused too much on George Floyd. You don't mention the name of black young female killed by the police, Uh, it was also criticized by white liberal who resented the fact that despite their support, they were still accused of being racist just on the basis of their whiteness. And at the end, we have an issue of distrust. About 80%, this is amazing, about 80% of Americans today have far too little or too little confidence in each other today, 80%. So we, we, we need to address this issue of declining interpersonal trust. Um, there is also an increasing number of Americans who, who are convinced that race relations are becoming worse now than it was before. Uh, we have what the issue of tribalism um, with the decline of the civil public debate and so on. So my concern when I, I I was quite not happy, but I was quite satisfied that I was really trying to explain puzzling variations to to bring you know nuance. Um, but at the end I was also very uh, sad sad um, because there is a spillover effect uh, of contentious identity politics. And at the end, it's detrimental to the most vulnerable population in America.
1: Mm, very much so. I wanted to pick up, given kind of that you've helpfully brought us up to where we are now and some of those dynamics, I'd love to bring back into the conversation something you mentioned earlier, the comparative idea, um, looking at the U.S. and uh, places in Europe. Um, Obviously, comparing one country's experience with another country's experience as if they're exactly the same doesn't really work. But we probably shouldn't go as far as to say that we cannot make any comparison whatsoever. So what do you think we should consider um, when we think about comparing experiences in the U.S., experiences in Europe? Um, To what extent Can we compare these debates around race? To what extent do we need to consider um, the fact that both sides can see what's happening in the other country, right? There's a transatlantic circulation of ideas. How do we sort of think about these things when trying to do comparison?
0: Well, obviously there are, significant differences between the US and Europe. I mean, different history, different groups, different issues, different agenda, and so on. Um, Even expression of racism in Europe and in America significantly differ. However, um, I I, I think that there are significant uh, similarities that allow Um, to compare and contrast the situation in in America and in Europe. Um, It started with ideas, the debates, and debates most of the time on both sides of the Atlantic are quite independent from realities, from objective data. Um, So it's it's funny to remember to some extent that racism in the United States was actually imported from Europe. Unfortunately, there was an influence of European writers, especially um, proponents of eugenics politics, um, and they became very popular in the United States. So initially, there was the combination of racism and violence, but thanks to the contribution uh, of European um, so-called theorists, uh, there was, in the United States, a justification, scientific justification for racism. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, black studies were also influenced by European intellectuals. Okay. Um, there are also social protests in Europe in the past, but also today, that are influenced by protests in the United States. Including symbolic politics, when Colin Kopannick uh, kneeled during the national anthem, and then there was uh, players, soccer players um, doing the same during the national anthem. Um, and once again, at the other end of the spectrum, the influence of Trumpism, okay, where you know there was the the revival of populist organization in Europe um the the make America great again you have you know the the some political leaders in Europe trying to imitate Donald Trump and having a very similar political agenda when it comes to racism, white supremacy, restrictive immigration policies and so on. so they are strong in terms of ideas ideologies there are there are some very interesting similarities. But there are also objective similarities um, when it comes to uh, racism. We are also facing racism in France, in in the UK, in many European countries. We have the issue of discrimination against minorities. Um, We have issue of police brutality. That's not new. Um, The 60s in France, the 70s in other countries. Um, the killing of uh, Stephen Lawrence in the UK 1993, and more recently, the killing of um, um, Adama Traoré, is a French George Floyd. Um We have socioeconomic inequalities, we have discrimination and so on. So, a different system produces same negative outcomes that we can compare and contrast. And I mentioned at the very beginning that um, America is the the most relevant example among Western democracies of violence. America, you can find all the different kind of violence: discursive, physical, um, racial riots, religious um, violence, political violence, and so on. But to some extent, we have to remember in Europe. Um, political violence, religious violence if we think about the war of religion. And one of the components of my model um, is contentious politics. And it's not a coincidence if scholars like Sitaro, Charles Tilly spent a lot of time in their career working on Europe an example. It's not, you know, so we we, we can decide that the United States epitomize violence, but we also have to remember historical and contemporary example of violence in in Europe. So now there is debate about that. We go back to the ideas, the the debate. Um, Debates in Europe today mimic US controversies. On one side, there is the debate about diversity, intersectionality, the post-colonialism, and so on. And when when you're familiar with this kind of debate and people engage in the debate, the scholar, the mention, and so on, it's extremely influenced by the American context. And on the other side, you have opponents, to um, diversity, critics of multiculturalism, and so on. Um, And this is also very similar to the arguments used in the United States since the late 90s. So I think we can compare and contrast. Identity politics is uh, extremely popular in the US. It's becoming popular in Europe. and we, we, there is a new generation of activists in Europe, and they tend to prioritize specific claims um, over a rainbow coalition approach. Um, I'm thinking, for example, in France, there is the Mouvement des Indigènes de la République. And uh, from the perspective of these minorities engaged in, in the process, The main goal is to secure their own narrow ethno-cultural recognition, as well as specific rights based on their differences, instead of an equality of rights beyond ethno-racial and religious or cultural differences. So, and this is, some people complained about that, including in France, the former president, the minister of education, who um, was upset of this Americanization of the debate and Americanization of identity politics in France.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, the book does is literally titled Violent America. So I suppose it's reasonable for us to go back to that for a final question or so. Um, given that we've talked about history, we've talked about the present um, in multiple places, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about what you think might happen in the future. Do you think there's a way for US race relations to move away from violence being such a part of contentious politics? Well, I, I try to remain optimistic.
0: Um, on the other hand, I, I, I don't have the solution. I would never pretend to have the solution or um, to be able to predict the future. So I just listed in in the conclusion of the book some some points that I think are important. Um, The fact that diversity is neither good or bad in itself. Uh, Identity politics can um, have very positive but also very negative outcomes. Um, The diversification of diversity can lead to more tolerance. It can also lead to more intolerance. So what what is um, important? First is um, to think about the actors engaged in this uh, cycle, um, dynamic cycle of identity politics and so on. The actors are changing today. Um, One one main factor of change is multiracialism. There is an increasing number of People in the United States, but it's true also in the UK, in France, who declare themselves as multi-racial, and um, that doesn't mean that um, they're not racist or they're not victim of racism. But the fact that the ethno, the ethno-racial identification is becoming more and more complex, more and more complicated, may lead some people some people will decide okay i'm 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 done with this kind of classification there are other criteria that should also be part of the identification process so um so some people will say well, wait, wait a second this is very similar to a colorblind perspective but it's not it's just realities more and more people do not define themselves in terms of the traditional ethno-racial categories, so we'll see. It's it's premature to to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to behave. But we know that, for example, multiracial people are much more tolerant than other groups. They tend to welcome diversity. Um, so this is the good news. Um, another point is the nature of the debate, the nature of the controversy, and by extension, the nature of politics, policies. Um, And that's why I suggest at the end of the book, we need to move from antagonism to agonism. Um, Rodinger, a very famous scholar, wrote a long time ago that common misery uh, did not produce solidarity among groups similar adversity but no sense of solidarity well i'm sorry but common misery should produce solidarity we should be able um, to restore common interest common good Um, this may be called a politics of reconciliation when when i mention that my students say well you think what uh, Politic of of reconciliation in Africa or in the the Balkan after ethnic cleansing and so on. Uh, Yes, to some extent, we need need to stop treating people, groups uh, who are different as enemies because this fuels the banality of racism and the banality of violence. So we need to identify commonalities that transcend racial boundaries and also all of the boundaries based on non-racial criteria. Mm.
1: On that wonderfully optimistic um, and hopefully not too premature note, um, I'd love to ask you my final question, which hopefully is also optimistic and not too premature. Um, though this book has literally just come out, and as you mentioned right at the beginning, you've done a massive amount of research, published multiple books. Um But given that this book came out of previous work that you had done, is there anything you've got your eye on to think about next? Whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of? Well, it happened
0: again. Meaning the day I sent the (laughs) the manuscript to my editor, I was relieved. I said, okay, done. And then I started to be frustrated. And I say, but the conclusion is too short. There are so many other things I want to discuss. So now, of course, I'm trying to address all the questions I raise in violent America. So that's the topic of my new book. Um, and I'm, it's mostly a critical evaluation of the arguments in favor and against the diversity, equity, inclusion approach. The so-called DEI approach, very popular in the United States, becoming more popular in Europe. Um, So it will be based on an historical comparative perspective. um, And I will analyze the benefits and the limitation of this approach, um, starting with a discussion, more philosophical discussion about the principle of inclusion and exclusion, because... I'm very sorry this sounds very basic but there is no inclusion without exclusion to start with um democracies are um uh, categorized by their level of integration which is good but there are different kind of integration integration can be soft nice based on you know voluntary uh Will to integrate, but integration can also be brutal, violent, um, force. So I'm going to deconstruct all these principles um, and, and uh, to try also to analyze the different policies and, more important, the outcomes for the most vulnerable population.
1: All right. Well, you've got a lot of fascinating things to get on with, so I will let you get back to that. I'll simply remind our listeners that the book we've been discussing is titled Violent America, The Dynamics of Identity Politics in a Multiracial Society, published by Cornell University Press. Ariane, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and expertise with us.
0: Thank you so much, Miranda. Thank
1: you so much.